0: This is the Game of Life podcast, and I'm your host, Sophia Dang. My guest this week is Miguel Sikert. Miguel is a professor in the Department of Digital Design at the IT University of Copenhagen, where he is the head of the Center for Digital Play. We deeply discuss a focus of Miguel's academic research, play, what it is, why it matters, and the dark sides of it. I hope this episode will bring a more critical lens to how we produce things, like games or software. A few glimpses into our conversation. First, we talk at multiple points about Steve Jobs' phrase, Bicycle for the Mind. Also, here's a quote from Miguel directly. Games are a cultural expression. They are in constant conversation with everything. So substitute games for people and for everything in the world, and there's a lot to think about. Thanks to Episode 2 guest, Professor Chris Bartel for referring me to Miguel. Please enjoy my conversation with Miguel Sikra. Miguel, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much. Happy to be here.
0: I'd first love to ask about your background. It is from The Shining. There's two of the scary children. Why did you pick that background?
1: And do you use it for all your calls? (laughs) Right. So... uh... Yes, I use it for almost all my calls and I am a horrible person. Um, (laughs) So that's that's exactly why I chose it because I'm like, I'm a terrible person. Um, When the whole um, uh, lockdown started back in 2020 and I had to go and and teach online um, and I discovered this this sort of virtual background uh, feature, I thought, you know, this is a horrible situation. None of us should actually be working or teaching. We should just try to, you know, be taking care of each other, but we couldn't and so on. So we are all trapped in this kind of nightmarish world. And then I thought, I have a weird sense of humor. Then I thought, wouldn't it be fun if my background was like the corridor of of the, what's it called, the Overlook Hotel in The Shining. And then I had like, I think I can show you, hold on. Uh, (laughs) But I had like, I first found the just the regular corridor. And and this is like, this is very normal. Mm -hmm. And then one of my students said like, Wow, that corridor is so creepy. It's good that the twins are not behind you. And then, of course, they shouldn't have told me that because then I found a background where the twins are behind me, That's <laughs> which so is great funny. because when I moved teaching, then it's like the twins were there and it's like super <laughs> spooky. I have others that are that are perhaps sort of like you rotate. <laughs> a little bit more comment. Yeah, so this this is for my most of my teachings and my regular online calls, but sometimes I'm a I'm a middle manager at university, which is kind of like a ridiculous position. So sometimes when I have a, a middle management meeting, I use this one and then I, I move a little bit. And so uh, it's a reference from the office. <laughs> so I think it's like it's a it's a passive aggressive way of commenting on on my own yeah, uh, perception of, of my job. I'm a I'm a terrible person terrible I or I think it's very funny it,
0: you are a play yeah, scholar uh, and I really was I, uh, curious because you've written about playfulness how would you rate yourself yep. now that we heard all of that that you have twins from the shining in your background right now yeah. as I'm talking to you how would you yeah. rate yourself on the playfulness on a, scale from one to ten ten being the highest
1: three <laughs> no. That quite. No, no 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 I don't know <laughs> I, I have no idea. I have no idea. Um, i I'd probably go for a six, seven. This self-grading thing, it's terrible. I think I could be a little bit more playful.
0: What is playfulness yes. then for the audience? Right. How would you define it? And then what would a 10 yeah. look like for a playfulness?
1: Oh, oh my God, yes. Um, so playfulness is an attitude towards the world where you open yourself to appropriate the world and live in it, perform any kind of action, relate to others in a way in which fun and pleasure and laughter are sort of the, the most important, the driving factors. My background, for example, is an example of playfulness because we could be in this, in this meeting and I could have like my, a corporate background of like my institution or whatever and so on. But instead of that, I choose like a, a film reference. And not only I choose a film reference, but one that it's sort of interactive and creepy. And then, um, then we have something to relate with that it's not the standard boring. This is how you should do things, but a way of for me to express myself through appropriation. So like that, that is to me playfulness to to try to live in the world and to relate to others on the principle of fun and togetherness rather than on any other principles of, of course consensual togetherness and consensual fun and maybe we will get to talk about sort of darker sides of play later on yeah. but but like that's to me that's that's playfulness to me and then so a 10 i don't know what a 10 would be actually because like i i have no idea um maybe, would there be potentially maybe...
0: darker sides as you already hinted to oh. to someone being so Absolutely. extreme
1: so i think one possible 10 which is a fictional character but it would it would guide us in that direction would be the dude from the great Lebowski, Lebowski, oh, okay. the, the <laughs> Coen Brothers movie, right? So like, yeah. this kind of like super laid back, everything is for fun, like nothing is here. And that's, you can already see there that that extreme is a little bit sort of a negative side, right? Extreme detachment from the world, ex- extreme will to live on our own principles and to play on our own principles can actually separate us from others, right? So, so it can make us not acknowledge the others and it can make us impose our sense of fun on other people and that's extremely dangerous right mm, so so i would yeah. say nobody should be a 10 in playfulness in my opinion i don't know if, if previous guests have given themselves a 10 and i'm saying like they're all horrible people you're not horrible people if you've given yourself a 10 you're not horrible people it's fine it's just me who's uh, who's um, has I opinions have not but, asked but so previous so,
0: guests, so i need to ask them now now
1: i'm curious and right now I, I have to now say have don't to PA, listen like... to this
0: episode yet with miguel
1: Exactly. And then rate yourself first. Exactly. Yeah, that'd be that would be great. Then then we will know the true nature of some people. Mm-hmm. No, but but you know, the 10 is nice as an aspiration. Like we would all like to be more playful in our daily life, in the sense of like being more able to express ourselves and to be more sort of assertive and be more focused on fun and pleasure and not on duties. Uh, but we can never do that without, at some moment, stepping on on other people's free will and intentions and and lives, and and therefore, sort of, the tent can be an aspiration, but we should never get there, because because then we are almost sort of like tipping over to to sort of less desirable ways of having of having fun.
0: Mm-hmm. I'll have to ask more about that later, because I didn't think of that consensual or that mutual aspect, where then you're exerting almost like a, your your force of will onto yeah. other people. Taking a step back about your background, did you play a lot when you grew up? And are there any pivotal moments in your life that made you want to devote mm. your life to studying play and games?
1: Oh, that's a good question. I, I did play a lot when I was a kid. I both played a um, formal type of, of games and play. So I did I did sports and I also played a lot of role-playing games, like pen and paper role-playing games, right? So it's funny because like, you know, something like Stranger Things, which is like a, a nostalgia attack for many people. For me, it's like a documentary. It's like, that's how it was. I didn't play Dungeons and Dragons. I'm a Call of Cthulhu person. But, you know, it's like, yeah, that's how it was. And then I, I played a, a ton of video games as well, like, really a lot. I had my first uh, computer when I was eight and I, you know, my parents really wanted me to learn to program. And I, somebody taught me, oh, but you can program your own video games. And they were all horrible, but I, I started programming video games. And then I decided other people are better at programming video games. I'm just going to play those video games. Um, Back when I was like a, a, a younger kid, I had a lot of toys. Uh, so I, I remember vividly playing with toys. And then if there's any pivot, pivotal moment when, when I decided to study games and play, I think I decided to study games when I played The Sims, which oh. is sort of relatively late compared to other people who are in, have been in game studies for a while where they played, whatever, um, Colossal Cave or a Commodore 64 game, and then they thought, like, that's what I want to do for my life. You know, games were, like, fun, but they were, like, something that, that I could, like, do for pleasure, but not something I could study. And then then I played The Sims, and then I realized this is interesting. This is this is like really interesting stuff. I remember vividly playing the first Sims and thinking, "We don't know how to explain this thing." I've tried things like this before, but this is like really something that that I don't know how to make sense of. Every time there's something I don't know how to make sense of, I will try to make sense of it. That's how I started studying games. Yeah.
0: Wow. So it was through. So blame, the it, on Sims. The Sims. blame <laughs> it on The Sims. Blame it on The Sims. Yeah. And all the different pieces that you could do and actions you can do or what about the sims struck you
1: the first thing that struck me i think was the fact that we we were trying to play lives that to me that's really interesting right so yeah. how do you it was really a a dollhouse but there was something about the fact that these these were sort of like computer characters that that had a life of their own to me that was just fascinating it was the perfect cross between a dollhouse and like an ant farm and mm-hmm. looking at the insides of a computer so it was this kind of mixture of the dollhouse simulation that could work on its own, could run on its own, like a like a farmhouse, but at the same time operated on the logics of computers. That blew me away. And then the fact that it was a highly ideological game, an ethical game, right? So at some moment, if you if you were very nasty with your character, it would take over and, and do things on its own. And I thought like that is also really interesting. Like yeah, has this, opinion. This, Exactly. This computer system comes with a set of values and like, I have to relate to them. Like, that was fun for me. And so like then I started studying games.
0: Because we're talking about The Sims, I want to just dive deep into game design. You used to teach yes. a class on game design. Yes. So you're the perf- perfect guest professor for all of us. <laughs> Walk me through how you think about the core components of a game from the lens of a game designer.
1: Right. I I should start with a disclaimer that I always taught my game design course not with the intention of my students learning how to professionally make games, because there's YouTube tutorials for that. I wanted them to have games as an expressive lens with which they could look at the world and reflect it. So I see them as an instrument for thinking about the world Mm. and most importantly, to get people to play. In that sense, I'm not a very orthodox uh, video game design teacher because I care less about how is this game going to be marketed and I care more about how is this game making people play. So like to me, when I taught game design, the first thing I always told my students is that, you know, in design research, we, we focus a lot on like thinking about materials. So if you're an industrial designer, you need to learn about the material properties of glass, of metal. So what is the material of game design? And then I always had like all these hands up saying like, oh, computers or, or cardboard or people went abstract like rules. And it's like, no, 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 no. The, the core material of game design is people. We work with people. To be a good game designer, you have to understand people. Everything else is kind of like part of of our tools to create experiences. But the first thing that we work with is people. And we work with people. It's the most complicated design work that exists because you're going to design an artifact that's going to make people play, but you're not going to have control over how they play. You should actually just use the artifact as as a tool for them creating their experience. You're not pre-packaging experience, they are creating their experience. It's what we call second-order design. So we design for other people to design their experiences. And therefore, the most important thing in, in game design, when you start, is to think, what experiences are people going to go through? Formulate your definition of fun for whatever game you're making. That definition of fun can be sort of formulated in many different ways Uh, you can say what emotions will players go through which skills are they going to develop how much time are they going to spend on this when are they going to spend this time right so it's all these questions about the formulation of the experience they are going to construct because what you're making is basically a tool for people to shape their own experience and once we have that core in place then we start working conceptually with The vocabulary of game design, which is, to me, I always gave two two separate sets of concepts, which are very simple. On the one hand, the, the continuum between playing and gaming. So playing is sort of more freeform, where you can decide how to solve problems, you are more expressive, but it's also more responsibility on the side of the player. And then on the other side of the spectrum, it would be gaming which is, this is a set of rules and you're going to play in this particular way because if you play in this way, you're going to get this experience. If you play a video game by the book, following the rules, you're gaming. But if you're playing it playfully, you're playing, right? So you always need to know where does the game that you're making, where does it fall on that scale? And how do you allow players to move within that scale? Mm
0: -hmm. Because sometimes you
1: want to play for fun, playfully. And sometimes you want to play for example, to win, and then you want to play gamefully. That's the first sort of vocabulary that I gave them. And then the other one is, they should always formulate things in uh, using rules and challenges. So rules of being the framework, mechanics, the things, the the actions that players can take and challenges is the obstacles that mechanics help players overcome in order to achieve some goals. I'm not that interested in goals. I'm interested in the challenge because that's where real game design is. The goal is just like, it's an excuse. In cinema, we would call it a MacGuffin, right? It's like the excuse for you to play is to achieve that goal. But what means something is the challenge. And then the last thing is like, I'm super interested in prototyping and I think the way I try to always focus their initial steps when they have a concept uh, where do you go from like something in your head and a piece of paper to something that people can play how do you find the fun and uh, the approach I taught them was to start by building toys rather than games so build a toy and then once you have that core interaction that it's fun then everything else will work but you build from the score and to me the, the toy is the perfect concept to sort of to to understand how to make good games. You so, encourage yeah. your
0: students to be experimental. So yeah. how does one start developing a better understanding of play or how does one start becoming a little bit more innovative when there's right. so much that has been done in in games and play? And can you get yourself better at pushing towards creativity or innovation or play thinking when making games?
1: Yeah. Um, I'm very old-fashioned. I think that the best way of making something new is to have made a hundred old things. So start by making a hundred old things, because when you understand how old things were fun, when you understand why uh, Super Mario is fun, by having built a Super Mario clone, then you already have that box, right? You can only think outside of the box if you know what the box is, what's made of, and how you can you know, what the boundaries are. I always recommend students to make as many games as possible. If they want to make games and innovative games, just make all of them. The second thing is it's fine to play games, but they should be culturally omnivorous. The diet of a, in my opinion, so this is like my opinion, disclaimers and all of that. But in my opinion, the diet of a good game designer consists on a little, a few games and a lot of films, a lot of books, a lot of music, a lot of visual art, a lot of, you know, practicing sports, a lot of all kinds, of, you know, games are a cultural expression. We use them to express a particular view of the world, but they are in, co- in conversation with everything else. The main trait in a good game designer is curiosity. Actually, so no, don't tell anybody because, um, because then, you know, it would be the ruin of, of game education. <laughs> but like, in my opinion, a good game education develops taste. So it, it helps people know how to define, describe, and defend their taste. And you can only have taste, whether good or bad, but just taste, if you experience as many things as possible. Yeah. I guess that's how I push people to to be. Oh, yeah. And then uh, make stuff all the time, right? So like they should be making stuff all the time. Oh no. And then a final thing. So making stuff is important. But yes. an even more, more important thing. You are never at if you're interested in play, you are never at rest. You should always be looking at how people play everywhere, because we all play at some moment, right? You know, having a broad definition of play, it's really useful, right? So for example, if you're waiting on a queue, start looking at how people wait while they are queuing, right? Because some people are going to start doing something to entertain themselves. That's fun, right? That's they are having fun, and therefore that's play. Be attuned to looking at what people are are looking for are people doing something weird or quirky? Do you see somebody doing something relatively strange with a smile in their face or like several times? Then they are probably playing. Take a look at what they are doing and see what you can learn from. We are always looking at people. We are creepy, terribly creepy, but like (laughs) that's how it is.
0: One thing that struck me already when talking to you was how many film, TV, media references you made. I had that in my (laughs) head when you're doing that and it's interesting that you mention the inspiration from any place. I talked to a game designer who's designed a lot of games and he's currently working on a stealth game. He showed me his trailer. He was so detail-oriented and he pointed reference after reference of this movie that he inserted here in this like little corner, Terminator 2 here. And I was just like, this is insane. He would walk through Mm -hmm. this trailer and he just pointed out maybe 20 different references that really struck me when I talked to him. And that was actually one of the first observations I had when I started talking to you. I was like, Miguel is referencing The Office. Oh, wow. That's awesome that, you know, he knows about that. The Shining. I'm like, OK, that's cool. And then you like mentioned these other films. Yeah. Very yeah. interesting.
1: Yeah. So to me, the world of games has always been in this kind of like I, I guess because the medium is relatively new, particularly video games are relatively new. We're always trying to sort of situate them as sort of this cultural exceptionality, like, oh, you know, they are, they are unique in their sense, of, but they are always in conversation with everything. Their aesthetics should always be in conversation with everything. And I think video games are excellent when they actually break out of the mold of games. So maybe they play like a, a video game, but they are talking to all kinds of other media. In weird, strange ways, right? So I have some students, for example, a few years back, make a, make a creepy pasta game. How how does like a a thing that connects to like internet culture? How do you, we make it into a game? And what kind of like technical effects from video games can we use so people can ref, catch the reference that this is a creepy pasta? And so so it was like everything connects to everything, and we should be at the nexus of of that conversation.
0: I actually want to talk about software. Because it's it's related, I promise. You wrote a book called Playing Software in 2023, so this year. And I myself have been building software in, let's call it Silicon Valley context. I've been at multiple tech companies. I'm still latched on this idea of how many influences you have as a scholar and the game designer Mm. has, because often I've noticed with the tech industry, startup industry, is it's very monoculture. People are not influenced, in fact, by film, by culture, and often even put it down a little bit. Oh, my heroes are Steve Jobs and Elon Musk. And they're amazing people. They're very innovative. But what about Walt Disney? So I'm really curious, is it just in games where you feel it could be more important that one has a broader view because you're speaking in context? Or what about like developing software when it's in a more capitalist system, it's in more response and, to yeah. the market and building business tools.
1: Uh, I agree with the, with the notion of the monoculture and the, the sort of the, the the cultures around software is that nothing matters but the technologies that we yes. build, and the yes. technologies that we build are our lenses to the world. And to me. That's being arrogant and tone deaf and simplistic. Unless you're making a piece of software that will only talk to another piece of software, which maybe that's where we are going to end. We are throwing software at the world where people are going to relate to it. So you need to understand people. Again, the main the main material of many of the software that we build out there is people. One way of knowing people is through their cultural production, right? So like, why does this type of books connect with these people? Why is poetry seeing a renaissance right now? Why are people sitting over TV shows and and sort of like building... All of that reflects on the world they live and the instruments that have an effect on that world should also be attuned to those needs, right? So the more you understand how people live in the world, the better software, the better tools you can build for them. So that's one side. And the other side is software is building worlds. Every time you declare a variable, you are creating a tiny piece of a world. In that world, the reality says that that particular variable has that particular value. So you're creating a world not knowing how worlds are created, not knowing how worlds are lived, which is the point of culture, is that we are creating worlds. We do it through music, we do it through literature, we do it through through cinema, we do it through radio, we do it through TV shows all of them are creating worlds. Software is also a creation of a world. So why is it that it's so special that it cannot take influence from all of the others? Because clearly filmmakers listen to a lot of radio and read a lot of books. So why isn't that world builders like software developers don't pay attention to all those things, right? And that's because we tend to think that it's a, it's sort of a scientific discipline, but I am sorry. It's a liberal arts discipline, software engineering. First, there's no software engineering, but software writing, sort of making software is a liberal arts uh, discipline. It's it's world creation. So there you you go. Now I'm going to get all kinds of hate mail. You may get hate mail.
0: You may, but maybe it'll have good (laughs) arguments. Why do you think it's evolved this way into being more scientific? You mentioned the technology aspect. Could it also be part of this Because it's so tied to making money right now, like there's a lot of venture capital thrown in and software is quite efficient from a margins perspective for a lot of businesses.
1: We can talk for days about the inherent capitalist nature of modern software. There's an element of this toxic capitalism that we live in that supports this kind of exceptionalist discourse. But I also think it has to do with the history of computation and the history of software. You know that originally programmers were women. Mm
0: -hmm. So it was
1: non-white men who wrote programs because writing programs was never seen as this kind of highbrow, real science job. And then at some moment uh, a number of men decided that oh you know actually that's that's where the prestige is it's not on the theoretical mathematical comp- side of computer science it's on the writing the programs so these machines can work because as you mentioned there's some there's an economic incentive to do that and then programming became this kind of prestige money earning scientific discipline instead of the more relational value driven understanding prior to this sort of men's takeover of of computer. So I'm not a historian of software and computing. So I may be doing like a a very broad strokes history. But back in in the early days of programming, there were some programmers who were also weavers, right? So they were weaving and programming and weaving shares a lot of common ground. And that's kind of like disappeared. The second computing became a man's job, right? And the fact that that uh, Grace Hopper created a compiler so we could write in a closer to natural language, this kind of ideas, like everybody should try to have access to these things because they are phenomenal. That's Grace Hopper's idea, right? how how we can not make these machines something separate and specialized, but try to bring them closer to everybody to work. right? That relational approach was there at the beginning. And then suddenly all of that culture just switched to we are the only ones who can talk to the machine. It's like it's, no. <laughs> but yeah but that shift happened I think one of the things you know Steve Jobs will have a legacy that it's kind of like what it is I don't think he was probably personally a very nice person to have around but one of the things that he always saw was the capacity of connecting computing with the arts world so it's yeah, like it true. was not they were not technical exclusively technical products I, I still like his racing bicycles for the mind that's yes, it that's a, that's a really good way yeah so that can you and can I you explain that phrase by the
0: way for the audience?
1: Right. So the computer should not be a substitute of people. It should be an instrument that allows us to expand our reach. It works with us and not for us and not against us. So that's the bicycle for the moment. yeah.
0: And yeah. actually, you're correct. He was very influenced by the arts and media and. Yeah. It actually shows through Apple products.
1: Yes, I, th- I think so too, and I think it's one of the reasons why they still have this aura is that they are not just this kind of machines that want you to be productive or to be entertained in this kind of banal way. They are, they are actually historically have been more respectful of human agency and autonomy than than other products.
0: You write in playing software whether we interact with video games or spreadsheets or social media, playing with software shapes every facet of our lives, even with spreadsheets. What do you mean by playing with software? And are we playing with software in all of our interactions?
1: Not in all of our interactions, but the argument that I make in the book is that we have this thing called software and it has changed the world. It has actually, uh, in the book, I argue that it has created a new world. So suddenly we need to relate to these computer programs that are doing things in the world. And sometimes we relate to them by playing, by Engaging in activities that are not functional, that are not uh, necessarily productive, that are more fun than any other thing. And in doing so, what we are doing is... Figuring out what software as an agent can do and how can we as agents relate to that other agent. It's a back and forth. It's a it's a relation, right? So we establish a relation by playing. It's a little bit like when you play any game, you are establishing a relation with all the other players through that game. So when we are using software, play can be a way of understanding what software can do and what we can do with software. So, you know, sometimes you get a new you get a new program and you need to know what it can do, and then you start playing around with it. That playing around is like, let's see what you can do. And then the the system is figuring out, oh, so you want to do these things. So you are playing with it. And in playing with it, we are shaping the way it's going to be in the world excel sheets or or spreadsheets they're not very playful to be honest i i I was trying to be a little bit provocative there but they can also be like people have built computer games in with spreadsheets and they they learn all these kind of like weird tricks and they are also super playful right and so so that's what i mean by by spreadsheets so for sure um but anyway so that's what i mean by the book so what i'm trying to do in the book is say First, playing is a way of making sense of software. What happens when we play with software as a way of making sense of it? What are the kind of positive things with it? And what are the negative things with it? And the positive being like, you know, things like video games or the capacity to uh, explore other sides of our personality or of creating worlds that are augmented through software. And then the negative things are... A little bit what we, we talked about at the beginning, right? That if you are too playful, you can impose fun on other people, not willingly. And then, and then you can like be detached of the world, right? So live exclusively in this kind of computational relation to the world.
0: From the player or person's point of view, is there anything that we can do to counter the forces of the tools that are designed? So you talked about Steve Jobs and... I thought that was very interesting, right? The bicycle for the mind and how he actually thought of tools as enabling human beings, but not the ones that human beings are beholden to. But as people, can we, you know, as players who play with the software, or can we do something?
1: Yes. So I think one of the things that I keep on going back to and I keep on thinking is that Play gives us the possibility of not doing things the way software wants us to do things. Wow. Software builds this world and invites us into it as long as we follow its rules. Whether it is walk 10,000 steps and you will be happier ever after, or create a profile and get more likes or any of these other sort of structures of being in the world through software that these these programs give us. And so what we can do is basically say, no, we're going to play. We are going to appropriate, reinvent and reimagine what you're going to do, and we are not going to we are not going to follow those rules. We are literally going to identify the rules of software as play rules mm-hmm. and we are going to play with them. And that requires education, that requires a way of thinking. So in in machine learning terms or in artificial intelligence terms, there's this technical concept called an adversarial strategy which is a way, uh, a strategy for fooling typically image recognition systems. So if you change one pixel in one image, the computer stops seeing a dog and it starts saying, I don't know, a banana. Um, and that's called an adversarial strategy. So I think play is an adversarial strategy. It's our way of understanding like, oh, well, th- that's the logic of the system. Now we're going to do it our way, right? Now we're going to, now we're going to fool it. There's this artist called, uh, called James Bridle, who once made this very interesting conceptual almost conceptual piece where he had a self-driving car and then he he drew a a circle around it and therefore the car would never be able to get out of it because it would always see the line as like oh i cannot i cannot move i'm just stuck here i just cannot move because because there's a line there and my programming says that i i have to not cross <laughs> that line so doing things like that um I think we should all be um, phenomenal liars in our social media. We should poison the data wells of all these companies that, that live on our data. So we should fake where we are and nothing should be true. We should click on the wrong ads. We should click on all ads. The the less precise all this uh, all this data extraction becomes, the less valuable it is, and we can do so by just like refusing refusing to play by their rules but playing with those rules
0: very very interesting you teach a class called play design and i want to talk about that in the class syllabus you explicitly say this is a course about making people play without games what motivated that angle to the class and what does that mean
1: Right, so um,
0: I know there's play without games. Just to be clear, no, no, no. no, I know, I know. Games, yeah.
1: It's it's the (laughs) it's the right question. So the reason why I made this course is so I'm mostly interested in adult play. Uh, You know, children's play is a totally different area that I'm I don't know that much about. And when we think about adults and we say like, oh, you know, we are going to play, then somebody's already running to get a, a a. board game, or they are already turning on the computer to play or the console to play a video game. So every time we think about adult play, we are going to like, where's the game? Or where's the sport? So the easy way out as a designer to design adult play is to say, I'm going to make a game. If you take away the the idea of, I'm going to make adults play, but I cannot use a game. I may be using elements of games, but I'm not going to be able to use a game. I'm not going to give them this prepackaged excuse of rules and mechanics and a particular time and a bounded world to play. I'm going to do something totally different. Then you have to work for it. Then you have to start really understanding why, why do adults play and how do they play when they don't have a game? And then it's, a, it's more challenging and it's also more, more interesting. And sometimes they end up making games, but the path to the game is not necessarily we are going to build something for adults to play and therefore it's a game, but it's more like this is something we do for fun. Maybe the best structure to to get other people to do it is through a game. I can give you an example. I had this group of students a few years back, five really bright women in my class who realized that one of the things they did in, in their friends group was to go into Instagram and try to detect where people had photoshopped their image. And that is like Yay, that's play, right? And then they built a game on the premise of like, okay, so now we are going to like identify and maybe, you know, (laughs) do I get it right or wrong? So they started from identifying their own play practice and then they built this kind of prototype of like, this is how it would look as a game. And I'm totally fine with it because they actually built an interesting, playful experience that had the shape of a game, but it was a good game.
0: Yeah, so playful experience and one that has a lot of meaning behind
1: it actually yeah yeah it's a it's a way of reading about society yeah exactly yeah and about what Instagram wants right it's also understanding the way Instagram wants us to play with it so there's a lot of yeah lots of layers on that project it was really good
0: well now I'm going to ask you the million dollar question because your whole class and your whole work is based on this assumption why does play even matter
1: Huh. So every it it's probably more like than every, a million dollar question. Actually,
0: it's like trillions probably. dollars question. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. So every for every book, more or less, or for every kind of big project, I seem to have like a different answer. So I'm going to give you the answer for this book. Let's just take a step back and think about why do we play? Because once we understand why we play, we will understand why it matters. My answer to why do we play is that we play because we don't have to. Mm. The core of play is that we don't have to play. That's the main power of it. We do it because we don't have to do it. And all of it comes from it. It's a voluntary activity. It's, a, it's something that we choose. It strengthens our age. All of the things. We don't have to. Work, we have to, unfortunately. Um, many other things, right? Uh, parenting, care, a lot of other things, we have to do them. Or otherwise, we are horrible people. Or, you know, we're also starving. But play, we don't have to. We choose to. And that's its power. That's why it matters.
0: So you would say it's maybe one of the fullest expressions of one's agency, right? Or the fullest.
1: It's actually, it's a a manifestation of agency. It's like, now I'm going to do something because I choose to. And that's why you cannot force it on people. You cannot tell it's right or wrong necessarily. Like, Like, it's very difficult to say that people are playing wrong. Because it's, it is about this taking our agency and manifesting it.
0: Should we encourage ourselves to play more, though, in our lives? And how should one think about, especially someone listening to this, how should one think about their own relationship to play? Because yeah. if it is a, I... if it is something around agency, I'm wondering, is it something where you, want to in- where you do want to increase? Is it a value? Is it valuable? Mm. It does seem like it is agency yeah. is an expression is yes but then it also is not clear whether it's needed to be encouraged though to yeah. me it sounds like it's a good thing there's more play
1: it, it is it, it is a good thing <laughs> I, I i think we should i think we should all play more being a play scholar sometimes i i go around and i say like we should play more And then people translate that into like, we should all put clown shoes and and have (laughs) balloons in our offices. And like, that's not the point. The point of of playing more is not the, the, the props of play, it's the capacity to try to have in our lives more agency, more agency that leads to fun, more agency that leads to pleasure. If we can, and not everybody can, I am I'm very aware of the fact that this is a very privileged way of thinking about play. And perhaps one of the reasons why we should eradicate inequality and one of the main reasons why inequality is terrible is that it doesn't allow people to play because the survival is first. Yes. You have to use all your energy to survive. And only when you have more than survival, then you can play. So like, I'm aware that I'm being very much drawing on privilege. But if we can, if we have that extra overhead, if we can choose to do things in ways where we decide that's the way where I have fun, right? Whether it is, you know, the the simple pleasure of singing while you're working or to do the one thing at your work that you want to do that it's on your own terms. Or anything that gives you pleasure. Anything that reminds you that, hey, you're an embodied being. You you have agency. You, you are in the world. You are alive. You, you, you should enjoy being alive. You're not here producing for somebody else. You're not here living vicariously for somebody else. You're not somebody else's instrument. You can have fun. And most importantly, you can have fun with other people. It's a way of relating to other people. You don't need to exploit them. You don't need to. You don't need to push them. Yeah. You don't need to shovel them. You can relate to them with, like, let's have fun. Let's be together in this, having fun. And and that fun can have multiple manifestations. Uh, it's not just balloons and clown shoes. It can it can be the smallest possible things, right? It can be giving a high five, giving a hug, smiling to somebody else, playing a little. Maybe even playing a little game of rock, paper, scissors while you're waiting for the bus. Like it's the small things, right? The small things that show that we are alive and that we are together on this and that we see each other, right? Uh, I think that's what the other thing that played us is that it allows us to see others not as instruments, not as vehicles, but as people who we can mm-hmm. relate to. Yeah, so, just humans, so yeah.
0: human beings, human to human. Exactly. Perhaps we need more of that in this world, especially I, as I it's I think we are more, more digital. Do. So I'd like to hear, like, what do you think about that? Because we're only going to get more and more exponential with AI. There's more conversations about metaverse, us being in these digital worlds more, not just in real life. How do you think Uh, about that?
1: Yes, another trillion dollar question. Okay, so let me start. I like technology. I think it's super fascinating to work with the digital world. I think we are thinking it wrong metaverse let's substitute the world augmented reality can be a little bit interesting but virtual reality let's all put a screen on top of our heads let's use uh, whatever social media to relate to others so my counter argument let's see how it goes maybe we are at the tail end of a pandemic but we're living through a pandemic the thing that people have missed the most is hugging other people the physical touch the embodied touch the togetherness we were all exhausted by not seeing other bodies around us. So we are building technology that actually only works in a pandemic world. And the pandemic was terrible. It was horrible for all of us. It was psychologically devastating. Why do we build software that can only thrive in a pandemic, right? It, it can help us with some things. Right now, we are talking across an ocean through this. So it has its purpose, but it has a purpose. It's not a substitute for all the other purposes. We're building as if Everything should be Zoom instead of like software should just be supporting bicycle for the mind, right? It should be supporting our social lives and not substituting or stealing our social lives. And just because a few people are extremely awkward and afraid of their own bodies, just because they have companies that produce software, we shouldn't follow what they do because they are probably not right right there's nothing better there's nothing better than hanging out together at a park walking your dog or at a at a sports stadium watching some kind of sport or going to a concert like that togetherness that binding element it's it's what defines, us and it's what's so difficult to control and and so difficult to sort of to, to, to sort of systematize and to and to compute but that's also what defines us right so so like that's the one thing i think we are building software thinking software first people second people will adapt to the rules uh, and if they don't well we'll make it more playful let's gamify and actually we should start thinking the other way around like we should like we design games right that's why game design is so important because we start by thinking about people and pleasure and fun, and then we build this tool that gives them this fun. This is my provocative argument, uh, I don't know, number three of this conversation. We should design all software as we design games, not as games. So not all software should be games, but we should design all software as we design games, with with human experience at its core. What would you and say then to AI. someone?
0: So, please do AI first, and then and then we'll okay. talk. Okay, we are talking
1: uh, at at a, at a point in time where ChatGPT is kind of like we are yes. all obsessed with ChatGPT, and I am I am really happy that we are all obsessed with ChatGPT because it's the first time I see a worldwide movement interested in a toy. We, we are taking it way too seriously. It's a toy. It's it's literally a toy. Why are we freaking out over a toy? It can substitute human. No, it won't. it's a toy. It's it cannot. It's like a Fisher Price keyboard will not substitute a person or a keyboard it's a toy and ChatGPT. what's fascinating is that we think that it's going to substitute us and the more we think about that the more we are going to see that in it but if we see it as a toy we can start seeing it as something that can augment us it can be a, Hmm. a tool to express ourselves to express our agency to see the world and of course maybe these tools are being designed to substitute things and that is wrong but if we start thinking about AI tools as something that can enhance our playfulness, that can, that we can play with rather than we can use to substitute our labor or to substitute our way of thinking or any other thing, then I think we are we will be going in the right direction. So I'm all for these tools as long as we don't take them seriously and we break them a little bit.
0: It's going to be hard though, not to take it seriously okay. because it is functioning very well yep. and not fully, because I know there's hallucinations. I know sometimes it shares wonky things. It does, it's not logical. It's trying to predict the next yep. word or the next text. Yeah. But in a lot of situations, I've seen people use it to write their full email or whatever. Maybe they'll edit it. Yeah. But so it's very like there is a utility there. And for better, for worse, it will. I don't know if it will replace all jobs. It will change the nature of some Absolutely. work. So I but, feel but so. So this so is how the, do we think about that yeah, then? Sorry. Because it's not all fun and games. It is a toy, but it's kind of not.
1: It, it is the consequences. So, so it, you're totally you're totally right. Let me try to think about this in stages. So on the sure. first stage, we have where we are perhaps now. We have this tool that can generate text. And therefore, in many jobs, you can use it to do the work that you're doing. And I'm all for it. That is play. If you can get your full salary for like writing oh. a prompt and, and I'm all for it, like nobody needs to work. If your work is so demeaning that an mm. AI can do it, by all means, use the AI while you're still allowed to do it. So like to me, that is a very playful way of relating to work. I I have this tool and you're making me write some customer support stuff to exploit me. I'm not going to work. I'm going to watch Netflix and use ChatGPT while I'm at work. And I'm all for it because I have issues with the notion of work. And that's where the second part comes. At some moment, companies are freaking out because there's these tools that now can substitute workers. And now they are freaking out because they can realize that they are paying people to watch Netflix and write prompts. And maybe that's what they should be doing. That's a great job. I mean, I'm all for like paying people to write prompts and watch Netflix. Work doesn't need to be hard. Work doesn't need to be painful. Work does not need to be demeaning. So if people are playing in this way at work, I'm all for it. Corporations freak out because suddenly they realize that whatever capitalist values they are trying to impose on people don't work because there's a tool that actually facilitates their job. Great. So then the next step is going to be for these companies or corporations, for these capitalist schools to say, now we are going to substitute workers for these machines. Great. Then you need to pay for universal basic income. I'm all for ChatGPT taking over customer support as long as these corporations don't live on billions of dollars of revenue. Then they should be taxed so people can have a decent life. We cannot cannot think like, oh, you know, they are going to substitute. It's their responsibility. There's always this idea of the responsibility of the stakeholders. No, they have a social responsibility. They have to be part of distributing all their wealth. They cannot accumulate it. So we go back to square one. The whole problem of software is capitalism. Because That's where it all boils down. So fine, sure, substitute people who do demeaning works by algorithms and machine learning systems that can do it but still pay people, pay your dues, make sure that people can have a decent life.
0: You've been thinking about play and games and the the ethics of it, which is very cool and critical theory of it for almost 20 years now. What have been some shifts that you've seen very holistically? What have been some Mm -hmm. of the things that you've changed your mind about through this time? And where do you think this area is going?
1: That's a great question. So I once thought gamification was a good idea. I was wrong. I don't think it's a good idea. I mean, there's something interesting about the abstract idea of gamification, but it's so easily taken over by, let's just use these points to exploit people, that I struggle with it being the kind of of liberatory, emancipatory force that I think could be. So that's one thing. Um, I used to be very positive about play. And I am, I mean, as you can hear, I'm still very positive about what play is but I tend to turn up blind eye to its ethical and political implications on the negative side uh, events like gamergate uh, illustrated that you can weaponize play and games to harass people and help fascism raise again uh, so I was wrong on that as well um, the dark side of play is not a theoretical it's not a theoretical argument that we should consider on abstract terms it's a very concrete practice that fascists will use to oppress people so we should actually be very aware of that yeah. weaponizing Of play so that's those are the two I'm in the academic world because I like being wrong I try to say something and I'm probably not right but I I try to be just a little bit right and then time passes and then I was wrong and then that's fine I don't want to be right being right is boring I just want to be productively wrong
0: and you're discovering new and new things like what you're saying it's the flip side of play it actually shows how play is very powerful because people use it in a way that's yeah. Subversive in this way exa- that like is unethical or unsavory.
1: Exactly. It's it's it can become an instrument of control and it's the yeah. scariest part of them all, right? It's a pleasurable instrument of control. Oh, we're having fun. it's It's very enjoyable. We're having all these kind of nice relations to other people. And it's just like, no, you're like being really nasty to other humans. Like why are you doing that? and i i'm I'm sort of a little bit concerned that maybe we are going to see more of that kind of negative side of play emerging because I don't know i'm 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 very not optimistic <laughs> about the world uh, in general. So I'm just afraid that we're going to see more of this weaponizing of play in the future. One of the positive sides of play is that it allows us to explore the possible. Play is always a what-if, something that does not exist, but we, we make into something that exists so we can explore different possibilities. And I am just very concerned that instead of using play and playful experiences to explore what could be, we are actually using play to constrain possibilities, to show us that there's nothing else than this world, but you can have fun in this world. You can have fun with it, whatever, these video games or these, these gamified experiences or these social networks or these facial recognition filters and so on, and you don't need to think about anything else. There's no alternative. There's this theorist called Mark Fisher who writes about the, the notion of capitalist realism. So the idea that capitalism always wants you to think that there's no alternative to capitalism. What is it? Slavoj Zizek once said that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. (laughs) Yeah. And that sometimes we are using play to reinforce that realism. It's like, yeah, the world is like it is, but here you go, you can play whatever video game or playful thing. And it's just like, nah, it should be different. The
0: funny thing when you mentioned about, you know, the inability to see other worlds is I was thinking maybe a counterint to that is there should be more artists, more people who are designing, you know, worlds and putting it out there, Mm. therefore being able to show people what's possible. But at the same time, Mm. that is, if it's especially tied to making money, very, very dangerous. And that's what's actually led us to a lot of the problems here, especially around social media. So I don't know, yeah. I, I this this seems very difficult to unpack because you think you want more expression, actually, and that will yeah. help maybe people who think differently and who are more open-minded yeah. or ethical, but then maybe most people are so- not going to make things like that because they're not incentivized to.
1: Exactly. So I think the way I am trying to address that in in my own little way which is, you know, very very small, is that when I when I teach, I don't care what my students do in their professional lives. I hope they're all happy, but what I do care about is that they have learned that play can be a way of breaking the instruments that will try to control them. That they have learned that there's a there's a way of tinkering with these chains. So there are other possible worlds, whether mm. by understanding how technology works, they don't even need to make anything. They can just like live their lives in a in in occasionally a playful way. And then hopefully they will they will be able to to resist some of this sort of inevitable machine that it seems that we are all inserted on. Right. So I I don't even think we need to encourage Making as much as playing, right? Maybe I we see. should just play. Yeah. Right. And, and actually through and, that. And some that artists that will, will make stuff, right? Exactly. I see. yes
0: And through that, actually, we'll relate to people more. We will yeah. understand expression more. We'll see the beauty of it, whatever it is. Actually, yeah. that might, if one does make something, that like might even yeah. impact on a small scale other people. I like that because I was going to ask you, man, what's the optimistic case? What could we be optimistic <laughs> about with all of this?
1: It's the small things. It's just like, remember that you can play. Remember that you can relate to other people by playing, if they want to play, that you can meet them at play. And that when you do so, you're experiencing and and you're you're instantiating a possible world. And there is nothing more fun, more weird, more expressive of, of what could be than creating a world together with other people. That's the absolute best, and that is also a way of of resisting, a way of not conforming to the things being as they ought to be, but like acting on creating that possibility. So you don't need to be a maker, you don't need to be a creator, you don't need to be a game designer. You can just play. Everybody can play. Yeah. and that's that's important that's if you're human
0: actually if you're not human too a lot of animals play too if
1: you're if you're if you're a a biological entity you can play bees play which i think it's great right so if if bees can play then uh, then everybody can play
0: i have two final questions i
1: like that everybody
0: yes Yes. i have two final questions i ask everyone on the podcast First is your recommendations for game content. And then I'm going to throw in a sub question because we talked about this. There's a lot of people in technology working on AI and working on software who don't have that maybe like more liberal arts view Mm -hmm. and exposure. So my sub question after your recommendations to games is, do you have any recommendations for books, content for those people who are making software and AI?
1: Wow. Yes. Okay. Games and playful things. Um, let's see. Uh, so I w- I'm going to recommend uh, a game made by uh, one of the most intelligent and creative people I've I've ever met. There's this game called Hey Robot made by uh, Frank Lance and, and some other. Uh, I think it's actually his family. He Frank Lance's family. Frank Lance is a game designer and game scholar. In New York, he's made this game, Hey Robot, where you have to play with a voice assistant. And so it gives you some words and then you have to try to get the voice assistant to say those words. But I've just very recently played it. And it's great because we all realize that computers are stupid. And it's great, right? (laughs) Because they're agents, but they're like totally stupid agents. And then um, two of my students made a highly experimental game and they got nominated for a prize just yesterday. Uh, They made a game called Presenter Slides. And they are going to be at the Independent Game Festival 2023 as uh, one of the five nominees for student games like... I totally recommend if, if people That's can find amazing. a game called Presenter Slides. So I've now recommended a hybrid and a digital and a non-digital game that I would like to recommend. There's this game called The Quiet Year, which is a, a map drawing game. So you draw a map and you tell a story of a community at the end of the world or at the beginning of the world. So, so something like that. It's so good. It's so good. You, you know, this collective drawing a, a map together and trying to figure out how to construct your community together and what is valuable and not, it asks so many good questions. So it's not a perfect game, but it's super good. So The Quiet Year is like a massive recommendation from my side. And then things for people in tech to, wow, that's a uh, that's a complicated one. Um, because most people don't take these I...
0: classes, by the way. That's true.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, they they would probably totally ignore it. Let's see. Let me try to give a number of things. Amazing. There's a very good po- podcast called Tech Won't Save Us, which are conversations with people on tech and that are really like critical. That's that's a good thing to to engage with. And then the other thing, there's this uh, short book by Audrey Lordy called uh, The Master's Tools Will Never Dismantle the Master's House. What a title! Yes. And it's just, it's so good. It's such a good book. I think people should read uh, poetry, but poetry is so difficult to to recommend because everybody has their own approach to language and what language is. Um, Why do you recommend poetry, by the way? Why would I recommend poetry? Mm -hmm. Because I think... uh, I think a little bit the novel is like the video games of literature. Okay, that was a very complicated way of putting things. But like (laughs) video games are uh, the dominant form of play. So the dominant technology of play. And when we think about literature right now, we think about like the novel as like, that is the thing, right? Like the great American novel and the Nobel Prize typically goes to novelists and so on. But I actually think that when poetry hits it right, it's kind of an understanding both of what language can do and the worlds it can create. Really good poetry forces us to relate to it. It needs to sing inside your head, and that's why mm-hmm. I I find poetry more 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 fulfilling than than I read many novels. But I also try to also to read poetry, and I find poetry more. It gives more back. What would I recommend in? Poetry, Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, but there's this Polish poet called uh, Wisborska. She won the Nobel Prize maybe in 96, something like that. She's very, very approachable and it's amazing. She has this uh, this poem about a cat uh, surprised at being at an empty apartment and it's all about grief and loss, but it's from the perspective of the cat. So it's just like, it's so mind blowing, right? It's so good. And she has a sense of humor. I like my arts with a sense of humor. So that's uh, a podcast and a couple of books. And maybe I should recommend, yeah, of course, uh, if I have to recommend a film, I would recommend uh, people in tech to watch They Live. Totally weird, uh, Nineteen what ninety six? maybe, John Carpenter movie, not the best acting, but so good. It's so good. They Live is a masterpiece. I will include
0: those in the show notes. And the funny thing is, of course, because I've been in tech for a while, I am more positive on the innovation side, but I do completely realize how much, as we talked about before, a monoculture there is. And the more accelerant technology is, the more we have to be more engaged with all the mediums and all the artifacts of what people are about. I think yeah. this will be a great list and um, people will hopefully read some more poetry.
1: I hope so. I hope they should just maybe instead of reading my recommendations, if they don't want to if people, if listeners out there don't want to read my recommendations, then play a game. Go into your closest neighborhood bookshop, go into the poetry aisle and choose the first book that's bound in your favorite color and see what happens. I mean, yeah. maybe it's terrible. I'm colorblind, so that would be terrible. Oh, so
0: you're just yeah. you're just gonna be grasping yeah.
1: anyone? I, I don't like, know what oh. i I don't know what my favorite color is. So yeah, but they could try they could try that. Just, True. just get lost, play a little bit.
0: Get yeah. lost. That's so good. That's such a good recommendation. Yeah. Final final question is: If you zoom out, what is your reflection on the metaphor of life is a game?
1: Oh, um, well, I don't quite like it. I would more like to say that that life is play. Awesome. Uh, and we can play like a game, uh, but I prefer to think that life is play or life is playing maybe. Okay. I like playing more than play. So so you want to
0: say life is playing? Why do you like that better? And why do you think that's more meaningful?
1: Because I think the, the word game to me has these connotations of like a a, a pre-made separate rule-based world where you, if you if you act in the way the rules tell you, you will achieve goals and potentially win. And I think life is more about maybe not winning, but like at least going through this, meeting interesting people and having fun yeah. with them. And that means admitting that there's more than one set of rules and that there's more than one way of Seeing the world and that part of the richness of being alive is to understand all those others' rules and ways of seeing the world and seeing them as what they are and going to them and living in them. Life is playing allows us to to enjoy the the multiplicity of of worlds that are in this one rather than it's just a game.
0: There's a, this question people sometimes pose of, is life the main quest or is it the side quest? That's not what exactly what you're talking about, but there's a lot of joy to... And an unknown of yeah. deviating, breaking the rules,
1: exactly not
0: knowing the rules, you just figuring things out. And maybe that even becomes exactly. the world that you build and live in.
1: Yeah, I think life is not the main or the side quest. I think life is turning around and figuring out what if I went in that direction? And then who knows what I find, but uh, maybe I'll find something interesting.
0: With that, thank you so much for your time, Miguel. It was a pleasure talking to you.
1: Thank you. It's been it's been a lot of fun, which is good. <laughs> which is important. Yes, awesome. it's very 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 important. It's it's been a lot of fun.